You're listening to Now I've Heard Everything, interviews from the 80s, 90s, and 2000s with voices from the past. Book of the Month Club books tend to be, we tend to hope they will have a slightly longer shelf life than things that are covering, you know, instant books about how to defeat Saddam Hussein. We try to keep to the books which people are going to want for a long time, which they'll collect and keep on their shelves. Former Book of the Month Club Editor-in-Chief Brigitte Weeks. Today on Now I've Heard Everything, I'm Bill Thompson. Well, about a hundred years ago, an advertising executive came up with an idea, a book club that would send its members new books every month. Now, if that story sounds familiar, it's because you've just heard the story of the Book of the Month Club. Ernest Hemingway was among the first authors that the Book of the Month Club featured, and in the years since then it has launched the careers of many writers, including the likes of Margaret Mitchell and Nelson DeMille. Now, the position of editor-in-chief of the Book of the Month Club is a powerful position, and from 1988 to 1994, that position was held by British-born Brigitte Weeks. Now, she brought with her a rich and deep background in publishing. She had been editor of the Washington Post Book World, I met her in 1991 when we had a lively discussion about Book of the Month Club and how it operates. So here now from 1991, Brigitte Weeks. What exactly does the editor-in-chief of the Book of the Month Club do? Good question. Uh, Go to a large number of meetings, uh, but also basically mastermind the selection process. I mean, Book of the Month Club offers a tiny minority of the books that are published, and somebody... Um, me and my staff has to get it from the large number to the small number. That's what I do. On the face of it, to the outsider, that would seem to be a very easy, cushy job. You just sit in your office all day, you look at books, say, that looks good, that looks good, that looks good. Okay, guys, let's go have lunch. Ah, but you have to read them. Uh, Which is the fun part as well as the difficult (laughs) part. And uh, you have to read them, in our case, as much as 9 to 12 months before they're published. You're reading manuscripts, often unedited, by people you've never heard of. Uh, it's a risky business. It's like backing horses. So you don't follow the bestseller list. You create, in effect, the bestseller list. Well, we're part of it. I mean, we contribute to it. Because I mean, what, what I get in here is mostly I follow the bestseller list. I mean, the, when, you know, when the publisher sees, oh, gee, this book's really doing well, Book of the Month Club main selection, then they'll send it to me. But you don't have any such such right. guideposts to go by. You you are the guidepost. No, because by the time you hear about it, it's been, um, you know, we just picked a main selection for next October. Uh, so... So we're out there sort of by ourselves. Quite often the Book of the Month Club editors are the first person to read the manuscript after the editor and the author's spouse. I mean, that's the stage we come in. You must have an enormous pile of manuscripts to go through. We have a room full. A room that holds three months' worth of manuscripts and two people moving them around. My gosh. I mean, you, you obviously employ a large staff of people. to. You don't read each one personally yourself. I don't, no. We employ in-house readers who are the final level. We also employ a number of, of very experienced outside readers who are sort of going through the first cut. We do it both ways. And we also have an editorial board which focuses its activities on just the main selection. So it's not a simple... There are three different kinds of processes to get from here to there. And my guess is that there are, there are your, your readers are skilled enough so that they know within the first, first five pages if this book is going to be worth going on and, and reading to its completion or not. 
Well, we don't encourage that because the fact is the first five pages may be truly dreadful and this may turn into into a wonderful book. Mm. And it is also true that the first 250 pages may be wonderful and the next 300 pages may completely fall apart. This is particularly true of fiction. I mean, with nonfiction, you might be able to get a better sense by looking at the table of contents and knowing something about the author. But unfortunately or fortunately, there is no substitute for reading the book, mm. the whole book. And that's what we try to do, unless it's a glaring example of something that doesn't work from square one. Now let me come back and f- see if I can finish part of what you said. You said read the book and the whole book and nothing but the book? Do you read press kits? Do you read PR material? They don't exist at the point we're reading the book. Oh, but, but, but if you get a manuscript, say, say you get Tom Clancy's latest, and, the, and do, do they send you this thing, hey, Tom Clancy's had five big bestsellers. This one's sure to be another bestseller. This has to be your main selection. They don't. I mean, I'm not going to say they won't, but they don't because basically they expect that we would know that. I mean, oh. if it's an unknown author... Uh, the rights director who is trying to sell us the book, uh, if he or she is doing a good job, will try to say, you've never heard of this person, but believe me, there's something here. And that depends on the credibility of the person. If you've had done business with them and believe them, then you would take the book very seriously. But still, I guess it, it probably takes some degree of courage to say, well, we've never heard of Oscar Iwelos, but yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll go with that. It does, but it's very exciting. I mean, um, the author of um, what, Alan Gerganis, for instance, remember that? Mm-hmm. That was the first novel. We read that nine months before it was published, and there was this feeling of making a real discovery. You know, no one's ever heard of this guy. This is his first novel. Can it be a main selection? Oh, but it's so wonderful. It's so interesting. It's not like anything else. And it's wonderful to watch a book sort of catch fire because when the publisher hears we're going to make it a main selection, they up the print run and they say, wow, we've got something here. We've got something by the tail. <clears throat> and so you feel as if you're playing a role. Uh, and with a book like that, it's very rewarding. I mean, that's the fun part. Getting rid of all the books that don't work is the downside, but um, there's an upside to it. You, you, you just sometimes wonder the chicken and the egg thing. I mean, do, do, do you make a book a bestseller by doing it that way? In other words, when, when, you, when you make a book the main selection, then as you said, they, they increase the, the initial printing and they have the box review in PW and, and, and the catalog says main selection. And pretty soon, uh, bookstores all over the Gerganis, Gerganis, who is this guy? But we better buy his book. Everybody else is buying it. I think that happens, probably not to quite that extent. I'd love to think it did, but I think <laughs> perhaps an ingredient of that happens. I mean, it may not exactly be like that. It particularly happens with main selections. Uh, when Book of the Month Club buys a book as an alternate, I think it's helpful. I think it supports the book. I'm not sure that it makes a huge difference. Um, that's a much less commitment. I mean, the number of copies is much less. I think that when most people think of a book club. Don't they think of the Book of the Month Club? Yes, they do. It's a generic. It's a bit like calling all paper handkerchiefs Kleenex. I mean, sometimes it's a problem. Uh, People muddle up all kinds of book clubs. They think, oh, you know, it's the Book of the Month Club. And almost all book club jokes, you will notice, of which there are many, always use the Book of the Month Club. And there's always some variation, you know, the the washcloth of the month club, you know, the the, the, uh, lemon tart of the month club, all all that play. I hope it's copyrighted or something. Well, it is. But, you know, I don't. We we have other things to do with our energy than going after the uh, fruit of the month club. <laughs> now, when you, do you get cartons full of the books from the publisher, or do you print the books yourself? We're a very big organization. I mean, Book of the Month Club, uh, the main club, has a million and a half members. 
So we make, we manufacture our own books. I mean, they are the same as the publishers, but the reason we manufacture them is simply because we need them at a particular time. We don't have much flexibility, and there's a large number. We've got to be sure that we get them when we need them, and they're usually manufactured here in the States somewhere near our plant. I mean, we have a fulfillment plant in Pennsylvania. Uh, it's quite a logistical task to get the number of books that we send out um, a year to get them out. I mean, the number of trucks and packages and all these things. So we do handle that all ourselves to make sure that we're reliable. Well, I guess there's also some degree of, of quality control then, too. Uh, you, can, you can make sure that if I've got a Book of the Month Club book from 10 years ago, that it's going to hold up well over the, you know, some books from some publishers, which remain nameless, probably are not going to be, be in existence in 10 years. They're so flimsily made. Well, that's true. And also the fact is if we have a book that's suddenly a runaway bestseller, because we use the same people that we've been doing business with for years, we have a certain amount of clout. We can say, look, we've got all these people. They're desperate for this book. Can you make it quickly? And that helps us too. It gives us some flexibility, whereas publishers tend to be competing against each other for space in the printing houses. After this short break, Brigitte Weeks explains why big-name authors don't necessarily have an edge. back to my 1991 interview with Brigitte Weeks. With a, such a long lead time, with fiction it may not be quite as critical as uh, you know, having a long lead time, but with, with non-fiction, uh, for example, I mean, who could have foreseen uh, there's going to be a rash of books in the fall you know about the Gulf War? Right. I mean, you could not possibly have foreseen that a year ago uh, or even perhaps six months ago, you know, when things were just starting to heat up. Who knew we'd go to all-out war and who knew what would happen? Do you have to try to stay on top of current events that way? Well, we do and we don't. I mean, if we're really pushing it, we can shorten the turnaround time and we can put in a special insert. Mm. We can do a lot of things, but on the whole, we don't see our role quite like that. I mean, Book of the Month Club books tend to be we tend to hope they will have a slightly longer shelf life than things that are occurring, you know, instant books about how to defeat Saddam Hussein. Uh, they don't suit mail order because it takes a while to get them to people. We try to keep to the books which people are going to want for a long time, which they won't necessarily – they'll collect and keep on their shelves. And obviously we want to be on top of the news, but sometimes it's simply not possible. There are books we have to look in the eye and say, it's too bad, we can't – do this. Does that rule out a lot of the uh, um, political kiss and tells, the uh, guess what I did for living in the White House? Well, I'm not sure that that's what rules them out. Uh, <laughs> for instance, we are, in fact, offering a biography of Ronald Reagan this summer. But in order to get to this biography of Ronald Reagan, we must have read 10 or 15 kiss and tell memoirs, which regardless of the timing, we didn't want. Uh, we just didn't feel that they were the the full picture and we felt they weren't were hastily put together i mean we kind of we played the high road we waited until we got a book that we thought did it all and you know if it's this long after the presidency so be it does a name help sell a book when it when it comes when it crosses your desk does does uh the story of my life by richard nixon uh, it attracts my attention it doesn't necessarily mean we'll take it I mean, obviously, it says The Story of My Life by Richard Nixon. I would p pick it up. I would make sure it was read by somebody who knew something about the subject. Uh, it wouldn't necessarily affect what happened at the end. Uh, it depends. I mean, we have sold books by famous people that are perhaps not of the literary standards that we would like because we think our members will be genuinely interested in that person. It's kind of a, 
a mm-hmm. different uh, depends how you judge it. We didn't find Vanna Speaks in the Book of the Month Club, I you, tell you. No, you did not find Vanna Speaks. <laughs> <laughs> However oh, hard you looked. <laughs> oh, but she looks so pretty in those Nor pictures. Nor did you find there. Kitty Kelly's book on Nancy Reagan in Book of the Month Club. Mm. There are, you know, we, we pick and choose. Do you have... Uh, how do I want to word this? Because you, you've, you've already addressed the, the amount of influence that you may or may not have. But do you, as the editor-in-chief, do you have some degree of, of determination during your tenure as to what America's literary tastes are? In other words, can you, by, by offering us a certain range of books, uh, you are saying, well, here's, here's what we, what we the, the people here at the Book of the Month Club, think are the best books that are available right now. And in that way help shape the direction that that literature goes? To some extent. I mean, we're engaged in really a two-part process. We are following, because what we want to do is to give the people who've chosen the Book of the Month Club books to read that they have a good chance of enjoying and liking. At the same time, we wouldn't be useful to them unless we were pushing a little, stretching. We do like to take risks, um, and sometimes, obviously, they don't work. But you don't want to in, to be too conservative because otherwise you're a boring book club. You do want people to open the news and say, oh, my gosh, what's this? I never expected to find uh, whatever it happens to be. You want to keep an element of surprise and an element which caters to people who are more adventurous because you never know in which direction the adventure will lead. Today's adventure may be tomorrow's uh, main selection. So... If you're too conservative, I truly believe you end up with a boring book club. And if you end up with a boring book club, you don't have any members, and so it obviously doesn't work. You, you undoubtedly want to, want to get in people's minds who are Book of the Month Club members <clears throat> that they, when they see the main selection, they may say, gee, who is this person? I've never heard of this. But if they're sending it to me, it must be good. Because I, I, the publishers that I deal with, I don't even have to look and see what the book is. If I see a mailing label, I know from a particular house, I know this is going to be a good book, no matter who it is, no matter what it is they're sending. Well, that's the whole point of your franchise, your reputation. I mean, the reason we wouldn't take a bad book that we could earn a lot of money on is not that we have any objection to earning a lot of money. We would love to. But if it was going to really disappoint our members, it would be a very bad investment because, after all, they can get books in a lot of other places, libraries, chains. They can borrow them. They can get them anywhere. They don't have to get them from us. We want them to get them from us because they believe, to a certain extent, if there are 14 books published on Ronald Reagan, that if we give them one, that it will be arguably of high quality. I mean, you do have to preserve that kind of trust because otherwise there's not much point in what you're doing. Also, in terms of books that no one's ever heard of, obviously, we do have the news. And when something is a main selection or an alternate, we talk about it in the news. And it's up to us to put enough information there to make people understand what it is we think is worthwhile about the book. Then it's up to them if they believe us or not or if they're interested But we give them the information they need to make the choice. And that's really important. I mean, that's the journalistic part of what we do. At that point, do you – how do you keep from crossing the line over – crossing over the line of becoming another publicist for that particular publisher saying, wow, what a great book this is. You really ought to get this book. Well, you see, people often ask – I mean, we meet with members all the time, and they often ask, how come everything you say in the news is positive? Well, the answer to that is very simple – 
Because if it wasn't going to be positive, we wouldn't have selected the book. If you select 400 books out of the 5,000 we look at, you've got something nice to say about those books. It doesn't prevent us saying somehow, sometimes, when a book can be taken in different ways. We can say, don't look for you know, serious numerical analysis here. This book is an entry-level book. This book is a history of Western art, but it's general. This is not for the specialist in Michelangelo. I mean, I think we try very hard to position our books so that people know what their levels and know what their lacks are. It's no benefit to us to get somebody to spend money to buy a book that then doesn't do what they want it to. We're back at the same place. So in a sense, we're kept honest by our own best interests. Do you see the Book of the Month Club as, as being more or less in the business of preserving literature? You've seen the books that I see that, uh, that I get here that are just, just shy of trash as compared to other books that you and I have both seen that are really, really good reading. They're good literature. They're well-written and, and well-thought-out. Is, 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 is one of your missions to preserve literature? One of our missions is to encourage it. I mean, one of the ways we can encourage it is very practical. We can put a certain amount of money into the process. I mean, it's very easy to starve if you're a writer. I'm sure you've had a lot of starving writers sitting in this <laughs> yes. very studio. We can put a certain amount of money into the process by selling a substantial number of books. And there are very many titles that we will sell more copies of the publisher. And in that sense, if we sell a substantial number of a good book, we have, in a very practical way, encouraged the process. So that the, the commerce and the selection are very closely linked and they should, if it works right, both serve – it should serve the, the cause of literature. I mean, it's going to sound very pretentious if you say we serve the cause of literature. But in fact, we should be in the business of encouraging high standards. And actually, I think we are. I mean, I'm not going to be falsely modest. I think that's what we're for, and I think to a great extent we do it. Brigitte Weeks is 79 now but still working with books. She's editor of Crossings Book Club. Would you do me a favor – if you like today's interview, would you tell a friend about Now I've Heard Everything? We post new episodes here every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And you can find us on all major podcast platforms. And thanks for listening. Next time on Now I've Heard Everything, we're marking the final four weekend by revisiting my 1991 interview with one of the greatest college basketball coaches of our time. It's now been 40 years since his North Carolina State team won the NCAA title. Don't miss my 1991 interview with Jim Valvano. We all tend to get smacked into reality when we see someone much worse off. You know, it's a terrible statement about us as people, but it's also very true. You know, here I am in the midst of, you know, worrying about my own problems, and boom, we have a war. I mean, my goodness, how insignificant. Well, I don't have any problems, to be quite honest with you. That's next time on Now I've Heard Everything. I'm Bill Thompson. <laughs>